Welcome back to MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is your host, James Davis. I'm one of the residents here at the Medical College of Georgia. I am joined by Dr. Robert Pendergrass, who specializes in adolescent medicine. Dr. Pendergrass, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, today we'll be discussing myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a complicated disorder characterized by extreme fatigue that cannot be explained by any underlying medical condition. For the podcast, we'll be referring to this as MECFS for short. To get us started, Dr. Pendergrass, could you give us an example of a patient you've worked with who has had MECFS? Sure thing. This is a patient uh, who actually in the month of May was admitted to the hospital, a 14-year-old female who had uh, had a fainting episode at school during a choir concert. She continues to be tachycardic at about 94 beats a minute at baseline, but her heart rate on the monitor goes up to 130 or higher when standing. Her blood pressure is 104 over 72. She complains during her history of chronic abdominal pain, loose stools, and heartburn. Her parents tell you that she's gluten intolerant and vomits easily if upset. She was well until she had the flu back in November, but never recovered fully. She missed more than 20 days of school this semester, either because she was, quote, too tired to get up in the morning or because of pain with menstruation. She's at risk of not passing the eighth grade, even though she's a bright student. She even quit the volleyball team, which was her favorite activity, because any exercise drains her energy for days. Her parents have attempted treating this at home with melatonin, three milligrams at bedtime, a probiotic, and an energy formula with herbal ingredients, which they don't happen to have with them here at the hospital. When you see her in the hospital room, she appears pale with dark circles under the eyes, a flattened affect, and quiet voice. Well, first glance, it sounds like she's got a lot going on. I mean, you mentioned the orthostatic intolerance, GI complaints, fatigue, dysmenorrhea, school absence, worsening school performance, and decreased activity tolerance. So, I mean, exactly how do these symptoms tie in with MECFS? I mean, the fatigue part, I understand. It's in the name. But everything else, not so much. Well, I think to best answer your question, we should probably lay some basic foundations first. So, first of all, what is MECFS? And then we can go on to symptoms. Okay, that works. So, MECFS, also sometimes called systemic exertion intolerance disease, is a syndrome of overwhelming fatigue with loss of physical and mental stamina, sleep disturbances, and worsening of symptoms after minimal physical or mental exertion. Okay, so I guess it's like a very debilitating fatigue. But um, so what causes it? And particularly with our patient population, who's affected? Absolutely, yes. It is fatigue that is severely debilitating or unexplained fatigue that's not relieved by rest and reduces a person's activity. As for who is affected, cases of MECFS have been seen sporadically around the world and no particular favoring to any one region or ethnic group. Anyone, any age or gender could be affected, although it does occur more frequently in those aged 11 to 19 and 30 to 39, 
with the teenage demographic occurring three or four times more frequently in females than in males. Now, the exact cause of this syndrome is still unknown, but an interesting trend that has been noticed is that a fair number of incidences of ME-CFS have occurred in clustered outbreaks, which raises the possibility of a potential infectious connection, maybe post-viral, for example. A second potentially related theory is that the symptoms arise from CNS inflammation. Third, uh, what has been discussed is a microbiome theory, which also supports an infectious connection, stating that the causative pathogens, whatever those happen to be, may persist in the host's microbiome. This would then cause a persistent dysbiosis and thereby causing a broad dysregulation of the patient's physiology and widespread symptoms. Okay. So we have fatigue in a 14-year-old female with a recent history of flu. Where exactly do these other symptoms come in? Well, first remember that ME-CFS is a psychobiological disorder as opposed to a purely psychological disorder, such as a conversion disorder, meaning there's communication from psyche to soma and vice versa. Second, as I hinted earlier, is the microbiome theory. So you have a multi-system disorder. And that multi-system component then would account for your patient's GI and cardiac symptoms, correct? Right. Correct. Okay. Um, if that's the case then, I mean, there's a potential for any organ system to be affected. So which symptoms do we need to be able to make that definitive diagnosis? So when you recall the definition that I gave earlier, I mentioned fatigue physical and mental exertion intolerance, and sleep abnormalities, which may range from non-restorative sleep to excessive sleep to insomnia. So these three major symptoms must be present for at least six months. In addition, at least one minor symptom, either orthostatic intolerance or problems with thinking and memory, commonly called a brain fog, if you will, must also be present. Okay, and that's making sense so far. Um, fatigue and exertion intolerance, though, are pretty vague symptoms. So what's, what do we have that distinguishes those symptoms from someone who's uh, exhausted after, say, running a marathon or writing a long test? <laughs> Excellent question. So the distinction is a matter of both threshold and severity. The severity of fatigue is such that a patient would have greatly diminished ability to do activities that they previously did as a normal part of their life and the exertion intolerance that is also known as post-exertional malaise. This is defined, uh, that is post-exertional malaise is defined as a worsening of symptoms after previously normal amounts of physical or mental exertion, sometimes leading to a crash and burn cycle if the patient is not careful. Similarly, the orthostatic intolerance is defined simply by worsening of symptoms when upright. Additionally, note that six or more month duration was established as a diagnostic criteria in adults, and there's some consideration ongoing as to whether the duration should be only three or more months in children and adolescents. Okay. 
So to sum that up then, uh, for diagnosis, we need at least six or possibly three months, depending on the literature we're looking at, of three major symptoms and one minor symptom to make the diagnosis, with the major symptoms being severe fatigue that inhibits one's ability to do their previously normal activities, to a post-exertional malaise after formerly normal degrees of physical or mental exertion, and three sleep abnormalities of any various kind. And then the minor symptoms consisting of problems with thinking and memory and orthostatic intolerance. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of our diagnostic criteria. What are the other symptoms? I mean, you mentioned that earlier that this is a systemic disease and you alluded to other symptoms when elaborating on the orthostatic intolerance. Some of the symptoms that are found in the literature as you review include neurologic symptoms such as slowed information processing, attention and memory deficits, and even demonstrable brain architectural changes on MRI, okay. including white matter, excuse, white matter abnormalities and decreased gray matter. They also may include studies that have shown uh, disorders of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, low overnight cortisol, orthostatic intolerance, and abnormal cytokine measures. Of these and other symptoms, the ones most commonly encountered across all patients include tender lymph nodes, frequent sore throat, GI complaints such as IBS, chills or night sweats, and allergies or sensitivities to foods, odors, chemicals, or even noise. In children and teens, common symptoms include sleep problems, headaches, abdominal pain, orthostatic intolerance, and you're less likely to see uh, the myalgias and arthralgias that are more common in the adult population. So this isn't some kind of malingering or psychosomatic disorder then. MECFS seems like it's much more pervasive um, in terms of the effects that it can have, which then raises the question for me, how bad can this really get? Well, frankly, it can vary a lot from person to person. Some patients really may experience mild symptoms such as tiredness, frequent school absence, and frequent illness. On the other hand, some patients may end up wheelchair or even bedbound for a prolonged period of time. Okay. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is that the presentation and severity have a pretty wide variance. Correct. And just to expound further on the theme of wide variance. Some patients may have a very sudden onset, especially when after an acute trigger, while the majority of others will have a gradual progressive onset. And in terms of time to recovery, some patients might recover within one to five years, while others might deal with the syndrome for 15 years. Gotcha. So we're looking at a pretty wide range then in both type of onset, presentation, severity, and duration. And I heard you mention triggers. So I'm just going to go out on the limb and ask, is there a wide variation in the triggers as well? Somewhat, yes. So uh, some, for example, some of the usual triggers include infectious triggers like mono, the flu, or an acute viral syndrome, trauma, stressful events, overexertion, chronic sleep deprivation, or toxic exposures. Okay. So to bring, I guess, this all back to our patient that we presented earlier, um, six months prior to her hospitalization, she had a flu-like illness, after which she became progressively fatigued. 
So that would be the gradual onset with the acute viral trigger. Next, she meets her three major criteria with her one, diminishing performance in school and missed school, two, withdrawing from volleyball due to post-exertional crashes, and three, the melatonin use, which suggests sleep disturbances. And then for her minor symptoms, she had the orthostatic intolerance and her various GI complaints, which you mentioned earlier, are a common symptom in pediatric ME-CFS. Perfect. Yes. Okay. So I think that pretty much answers my initial question about symptoms. Now we get to the kind of the more important question of how do we manage this? Well, the first step is with any diagnosis should be a thorough HPI, history of present illness, just the basic things with which we're all trained in medicine. That makes sense. I mean, there's a wide variety of onset symptoms and severity, so we got to get the details of what exactly is going on. Exactly. Second, your physical exam and relevant lab work comprising that six-month rule-out period. And third would be the actual management of the illness. Okay. So then with regards to the rule-out period, what work exactly goes into that? Well, first we start with the basics. Get a good thorough physical exam and if needed, a mental status exam. From there, depending on what your pertinent positives and differential are, you would then order lab work and consultation with pertinent subspecialties. Something important though is the use of standard symptom checklists. These could be used objectively to measure presence and change of symptoms across the duration of treatment. Okay, that sounds like a very useful tool. Um, what kind of lab work do you usually order for these patients? Well, there's no single diagnostic test for MECFS, but basic labs, of course, would include a CBC, CMP, CRP, ESR, ferritin, TSH, free T4, B12, folate, vitamin D level, a TTG, IgA, and urinalysis because the differential is so broad. Okay. If you have suspicions of any disorder that might not necessarily be covered by these labs, for example, a double-stranded DNA to rule out SLE, then you would need to order those in addition. Okay, so that makes sense to me. So because ME-CFS is a diagnosis of exclusion, the lab work and the consults that we do are to show that our patient's symptoms are not due to any other cause, whether organic or pathologic. And then the six month time frame is to show this is a chronic process and to give time to rule out other conditions. Now, once we make this diagnosis, how do we exactly manage this disease? In short, by managing expectations and prioritizing social engagement. But before I move to that point, I want to clear up something about the rule out period and process. MECFS can have comorbid disorders. So diagnosing another illness during this time period doesn't necessarily rule it out. Okay. That's actually you know, important information to know, because I know it's really easy to get caught in that way of thinking of, I found one thing, therefore nothing else is valid. So are there any symptoms that are found that are very common comorbid symptoms? Actually, yes. For example, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and joint hypermobility in general have a large overlap with MECFS, although the reason is still unknown. One theory that's been posited for that is that there may be increased blood pooling in the extremities in someone with this connective tissue disorder or hypermobility. Other chronic conditions 
uh, that are commonly comorbid include SLE, Sjogren's syndrome, and the coexistence of depression in these patients warrants a special mention of its own. If I were to be asked, how do you decide clinically if this is depression versus ME-CFS, I'd say, yes, the vast majority of patients with ME-CFS are likely depressed and meet diagnostic criteria for depression. But the inverse is not true of patients with depression. Most patients with depression will not meet criteria for ME-CFS. Since this is not an either-or situation, it's incumbent on all of us clinicians to think about both diagnoses when assessing a patient and do enough inquiry to elicit data to support one or possibly both of those diagnoses. Okay. So I'm seeing a teen in my office who appears to be depressed. What exactly do I do to decide whether this is depression or MECFS? First, remember that they're not mutually exclusive and there's quite a bit of overlap. And a patient with MECFS who's also depressed by your standard diagnostic criteria for depression needs the depression treated like any other patient with depression. We treat comorbidities in MECFS when the core disease can't be treated. So treat the depression while you acknowledge that there's more than depression going on here. But a pitfall here would be if a clinician has not been educated about MECFS, might see a patient with the disorder, almost all of whom are depressed, and mistake it for depression alone because they do not have a sufficiently broad differential diagnosis. I gotcha. So it's kind of like the adage of when all you have is a hammer, everything seems like a nail. It's interesting. <laughs> all right. Um, jumping back to the management, though, uh, you mentioned that it's important to manage the patients, and I'm assuming the family's expectations, correct? What do you mean by that? Well, remember what we discussed earlier, that there's a good deal of variability in severity of symptoms and duration of disease. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly that. <laughs> it's important to help patients and families to have a realistic set of expectations regarding their severity and the length of the illness. This includes helping families understand that MECFS is not merely unwillingness to go to school or social engagements. This is not school avoidance. And also to help them understand that there's no simple cure and that it's certainly not all in the patient's head either. Okay. So it sounds like a tall order, but I can see how that would be very important so that we can get everyone on the same page and help foster a sense of collaboration to create a, quote, healthcare team, if you will, between the family and the physician. Uh, once we get this rapport established, what exactly do you do to proceed with managing the patient's problems? That would fall in that area of prioritizing social engagement, which has two main components to doing so, managing the social impacts and managing symptoms. Management of social impact is, in essence, working to keep your patient as socially engaged as possible, especially when it comes to continuing school engagement and education. Okay. So this would be solutions like, say, half days or school from home, things like that? 
Those are good examples, yes, but that's not the only component. Okay. Our job as physicians is to communicate with the schools and educators and providing them education on MECFS and how to help care for our patient if he or she is able to be physically present in school. This should be a collaborative effort on how to keep our patient from falling behind his or her peers as much as possible. It's important to remember that for MECFS patients, many want to be socially engaged and active, but are physically unable to do so. Okay. So then part of our job as physicians is to help create some of these accommodations for our patients. In part. Okay. The other half of prioritizing social engagement is symptom management, or another way to think about it is maximizing their ability to be active and engaged without causing overexertion. This is done on a symptom-by-symptom basis, starting with the major symptoms, but treating other symptoms as they arise. Okay. So what exactly would that look like in a regular practice? Well, it needs to start with regular office visits, particularly uh, to keep tabs on your patient, partly to offer support, affirmation, validation, and next, managing that post-exertional malaise. We can do that by setting reasonable limits on activity uh, collaboratively with the patient, helping them to avoid cycles of overexertion and crashing, and by using pedometers, for example. Pedometers? Uh, Well, yes, maybe I'm old-fashioned. You might be able to use an Apple Watch or Google Fit, too. Uh, The idea is to measure how much exertion it takes to hit the fatigue limit and to better help your patient to set their exertional limits so they know when they're getting close to what they, they have done before when they hit that limit. It also comes in handy for showing measurable evidence of improvement, whether it's by an extra 50 steps a day or 10 minutes of added activity tolerated. These small goals are something worth celebrating. I got you. So it kind of gives us an objective benchmark to give us uh, small victories to celebrate then. It's pretty neat. Uh, What other symptoms, though, do we usually manage and how do we do that? Well, we manage, for example, sleep problems by improving sleep hygiene or using over-the-counter medications like melatonin. We can manage brain fog by ADHD medications, though it's important to be aware of the risk for increasing push-crash cycles due to stimulant use when the patients feel better than they expected to and overdo it. Mm-hmm. We can manage orthostatic intolerance with management of fluids, salt intake, support stockings. We can manage depression and anxiety, ideally by therapy and a a well-informed professional therapist or counselor with or without medications Mm -hmm. and manage pain by a variety of methods, including simply getting your patient moving, physical therapy, acupuncture, and non-opioid pain control. Okay. So that, that's an interesting approach. And I can see how the goal of all these individual therapies is to better enable your patient to engage and be active and to try and do so without prescribing a long list of medications. Right. And there's nothing wrong with prescribing your using medications. It's just important, as in any other disease presentation, 
to be judicious about medication choice here. Okay. Yeah. And that's definitely good to keep in mind. Um, thank you very much for walking us through actually the description of the disease and its management. Um, before I close though, I did have one final question. You know, this is not a disease I'm particularly familiar with. And so I wanted to know what research is currently being done on MECFS, whether it's on the etiology, physiology, or management of the disease. Well, unfortunately, not a whole lot of work is being done currently. It's well underfunded. Back in 2015, the Institute of Medicine assembled and wrote a 300-page document compiling the accumulated knowledge and understanding of this disease. That document and working group worked to redefine the disease from its last working definition of chronic fatigue syndrome back in 1994 and it's actually where we get its other name that I mentioned earlier, systemic exertion intolerance disease. Okay. Since that 2015 paper, the main research that's been done, at least that I could find, is at Stanford and at University of Alabama. Stanford's research is currently looking at the link between MECFS and a prior infectious event, They've also looked into the possibility of MECFS being driven by pro-inflammatory cytokines. UAP is looking at neuroinflammation specifically as a mechanism for MECFS, as well as researching the use of low-dose naltrexone, sometimes called LDN, for pain management. Okay. So that, that's actually some very interesting research that's being done, and it's kind of unfortunate that not much else has been started or is currently being funded. But hey, who knows? Maybe this discussion will inspire some of the listeners maybe to be involved in research to help maybe find a cause or a more effective targeted therapy. Who knows indeed? Well, thank you very much for taking the time to educate us on this topic, Dr. Pendergrast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you. You're welcome. Um, that's it for today. Remember, all content from the MCG Pediatric Podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used for medical advice to diagnose or treat any patient. Thank you for listening to the MCG Pediatric Podcast.